Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you. All right. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. We are continuing the reading from What Happened to You, Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing by Dr. Bruce Perry in conversation with Oprah Winfrey. We are in the last chapter and then there is a epilogue that we will read. Um, we'll probably finish this book maybe next Wednesday. And I am excited about that because we are going to be starting a new book. We'll be reading um, Boundaries as well as Drama Free by Dr. Nedra Tawab. And so we are going to be looking at how to maintain our boundaries, how to create boundaries, and also how to deal with family dynamics, um, and especially family dynamics that may be dysfunctional. So we are still going to be continuing our relationship topics on Wednesday. We just will be switching books. So um, next week, I will bring those books on so you take a look at them. And if you want to go ahead and get those books ordered because you want to read along with us and discuss, um, her name is Dr. Nedra or Nedra, N-E-D-R-A, Tawab, T-A-W-W-A-B. Her books are wherever books are sold. Again, we're going to be reading simultaneously her book on boundaries, and we'll be also reading her book called Drama Free, which is her second book um, that deals more so with family dynamics. So those are the two books that we will be reading on Wednesday in the coming weeks. All right. So in this chapter, what we need now, the last part of our conversation that we stopped on was we talked about helping parents and teachers and clinicians know the stage and to watch the state of a child's development. Those two things. And we said that the goal is to help teachers, parents, educators, anybody who's in contact with children to become aware of a child's state dependence and encourage them to ask themselves, is this child in a state where they can effectively hear what I'm trying to say or teach? Oftentimes we are trying to get children to do something um, where they may not be in a state or they may not be in a developmental stage to actually get or understand what you're saying, which of course could breed 
um, more frustration in you as the adult or as the parent or as the teacher, or as the administrator, leading to some negative consequences that you put in place on the child. All right. Rather than simply understanding, man, this child is not at a state or stage in which they can actually understand or hear what I'm teaching. So we're going to continue in that discussion and I will probably go for about 15, 20 minutes reading. So let's see how far we can get on the topic. It is amazing how often we ignore this. As we have discussed, if the child is too dysregulated, they will not be open to any new learning or experience. And if you continue to expect the child to pay attention, to focus and learn, you will be eroding the child's sense of safety with you. You will be damaging the empathic bond between the two of you, the very thing on which all chance of change depends. So back away from teaching, coaching, and reasoning when the child's state is such that they cannot learn. Focus on being present and regulate yourself when you start to feel frustrated, disrespected, or angry because they have not listened to you. If you step away and calm down, you will have access to your cortex and to then remember ways to help regulate the child. Your relationship lives to teach another day. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Over the last maybe two weeks, when I've had or tried to have conversations with people online about um, neurological pathways of children, um, when I've had to have, when I've tried to interject into some of these conversations about how children were raised back in the day and how we need to go back to the old school way of raising children. And I'm trying to reason with people and say, listen, the old school way of raising children worked because your parents treated you, good morning, your parents were treating you as if you had no bodily autonomy. They were treating you as if you were less than a person and not a little person. Now, does that make your parents wrong or does that make your parents evil? No, but it is the kind of parenting model that your parents grew up under. And that is the model that they put you under, right? But because we know more and we know better, our practices should be evolving as people and therefore as parents and guardians and teachers and etc. So when I try to explain to people that, listen, when you say there is no negotiation in my house, you are in effect teaching your child that they don't have a right to share, that they don't have a right to speak their mind, that they don't have a right to form a decision outside of the one that you're giving them. And what people are not looking at is the long-term consequences of that. Where do we see the long-term consequences? Well, as an educator, I get to see those long-term consequences in the class. So when I say to your child, um, I want you to write a story and the child just sits there and I have to give the child a setting, give the child a time period, give the child characters in order for that child to generate an idea on their own in order to write. That comes from growing up repeatedly being told that there is no negotiation. You don't have a choice. 
You do what I tell you and that's it. So that plays out in a classroom setting and furthermore, it plays out in a collegiate setting when your child is being asked to generate ideas independent of their instructor and they cannot do it. They absolutely cannot do it. And I'm not just saying it because of me. I'm saying this is, this is across the board. I'm hearing educators talk about this. That the students that they get, once they hit college, they are unable to generate independent thoughts because they have spent most of their um, K through 12 education writing from prompts, meaning somebody gives them an idea and they have to, and they write from that idea versus generating an idea and a thought for themselves. That is a problem. It's a problem because they have not been trained. They have not been taught. They have not been encouraged to generate independent thoughts. And the first place that that begins is in the home. When you give children choices, <laughs> okay? So if you're taking away all of their decision-making power saying, I'm the parent, I get to decide every single thing, you are not doing your child a favor. You're doing them a disservice, okay? So just understand that when you take away options from a child, you are informing their future that unless somebody makes the decision for me, I can't do it. This also, this also shows up, um, let me see, there we go. This also shows up when a student may be asked to give their opinion about something. And they say, well, I don't really have an opinion on it. And you say, what do you mean you don't have an opinion? Well, I, I don't have an opinion on it. Once again, I've had students, and this is collegiate and high school, say, nobody's ever really told me that I needed to have an opinion. <laughs> nobody's really asked me what I thought. And then I've had to go back and say, well, well, Aren't you having conversations at home of some kind with a grandparent, a parent, somebody? No, because they told me I need to stay in a child's place. Or when they were having conversations, they sent me out of the room. Or here's a popular one. Children are to be seen and not heard. So just understand if those are the, if those are the modes that you're living by, your child is growing silent and more silent and more silent and more silent. And when it comes time for them to speak and hold a conversation, it becomes a difficult thing. And so now you have educators that have to go back to square one and have to teach conversation, how to have a conversation, how to start a conversation, how to be inquisitive, how to ask questions before they can even get to something like write your opinion. Because people have been teaching their children, unfortunately, that their voice doesn't really matter. 
And you may say, well, I'm, I'm not outright saying their voice doesn't matter. You might not be saying it directly, but in your instructions with your child, in, in quote unquote disciplining them, you are indirectly taking away their voice. Okay, so let's continue. Our work with Susan continued for four years. She made slow but steady progress. The primary therapeutic techniques evolved from soma to sensory to rhythmic and regulatory, including working with a therapy dog to relational and finally to cognitive dominant like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. The fascinating thing is that we ended up using many of the same therapeutic methods that had previously failed. There hadn't been anything inherently wrong with the prior methods. They were simply applied at a time when Susan couldn't benefit them. Neurosequential. It's all about the sequence. The brain develops, processes incoming sensory input, and heals in sequence. By the end of this therapeutic process, Susan was in a mainstream classroom and on grade level. She had a handful of friends. She had no more explosive or self-mutilating behaviors. She had transitioned to healthier, more socially acceptable forms of dissociative regulation, reading, art, and drama. She was developing her capacity to be kind and compassionate. Her parents were no longer exhausted and burned out. Oprah says, and the lesson is that no matter what has happened, you get a chance to rewrite the script. Exactly. It really is never too late. Healing is possible. The key is knowing where to start the process and matching the developmental needs of the person. Oprah says, I remember talking to Belinda Pittman McGee, who runs a Nia Imani Center in Milwaukee. This is a long-term transitional housing facility for homeless young women who are pregnant or have young children. Belinda said that women often come to the center with behavioral disorders like a quick temper or the inability to hold a job, the kinds of things that can come from being raised in a traumatic environment. When she starts teaching them about trauma, she says they begin to understand that their struggles with emotions and acting out are connected to what happened to them. That realization in itself can be life-changing when you've labeled yourself as bad or stupid or believe that it was simply your fate. I can't tell you how many people feel incredibly relieved when they get an explanation of how their brain is working and why. We don't give them a psychiatric label. We're just saying this is the way that you've organized and it's absolutely predictable based upon what happened to you. Then we help them to understand that the brain is like plastic, it's changeable. And together, we come up with a plan that will help change some of the systems that appear to be causing them problems. It's the recognition that what I've been through has caused me to have these kinds of feelings, and I'm not the only one. And it makes sense. It makes sense that if you're an overworked mother of three or four with a history of trauma, you'll have trouble coping while trying to carry out your burdens all by yourself. Your health is being compromised in ways you don't even recognize. And then to realize that the reason you may feel overwhelmed is that you haven't found a good way to regulate yourself. This is why giving back to yourself is so important. If you aren't regulated yourself, how can you as a parent work effectively? This is such an important point. We are often asked to help children and youth who have been maltreated or traumatized or consult for a community following a traumatic event. 
And when I tell people that I'll actually need to work with the adults as well, they're confused. But if adults who live with and teach and treat children are not regulated themselves, they will not be able to be fully present in a compassionate, regulated way. It is those fully present moments that are regulating, rewarding, and healing for the children. If we help the children but don't meet the needs of the adults, our work will have little impact. This is one of the most important principles of any trauma-informed approach. You have to help the frontline adults who will be working with the children and the youth. This shift in focus is challenging for some of our systems. In the child mental health system, for example, the patient is the child. The system's economic model typically doesn't include paying a clinician if they want to give time to the child's teacher or coach or parents. This is a very short-sighted method. We know that a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated child. And I can tell you for a fact that I see online so many dysregulated adults. And how can I tell that you are dysregulated? You're dysregulated when someone is asking you a question or trying to explain something to you and your response is, get the F out of here. (laughs) And all the other words and expletives that come along with that when someone is explaining something to you, they're explaining a fact or they're explaining how something works. And the only thing you can resort to is profanity. The only thing you can resort to is name calling. You, ma'am and sir, are dysregulated. And if you have children, if this is what you're doing online, I can imagine what your actual children who have no power are receiving from you as the unregulated adults because you're unregulated with other adults. So we know good and well you're not regulating with children. An exhausted, frustrated, dysregulated adult can't regulate anybody. So if you are unregulated, chances are your children are receiving the unregulated you. And when children receive an unregulated adult, guess where that goes? That ultimately goes with them to school. Now I have children that I work with whose parents I'm also working with. And then I have children that I work with whose parents are not really engaged in the education process of their child. And I can see day and night between how their children respond to learning. So until those parents decide to invest in what their children are learning and invest in themselves in terms of how can I better help my child by helping myself for one, Some things that we already see at the start of the school year are going to continue throughout the school year until that parent decides to get some regulation for themselves. As you point out, if you don't give back to yourself, you simply will not be effective as a teacher, a leader, a supervisor, a parent, a coach, anything. This is why One of the things that I practice when I am coaching adults is I have a whole section where we talk about leading yourself. You cannot lead anybody else until you first learn how to lead yourself. So whatever it is, whatever it is you need to regulate, whether it is spirit, 
whether it is body, whether it is emotions, whether it is how you are responding in relationships, leading yourself is key. That's the first step. I can't lead you anywhere I'm not willing to lead myself. I can't lead you into emotional health if I'm not leading myself into emotional health. Self-care is huge. Unfortunately, many people feel some guilt about taking care of themselves. They view self-care as selfish. It's not selfish. It is essential. Remember, the major tool you have in helping others change, whether you are a parent, a teacher, a coach, a therapist, or friend, is you. Relationships are the currency of change. Oprah responds, we have to take care of ourselves so we can bring ourselves. This is especially important considering that so many of us are walking around with trauma or adversity in our own past. I wouldn't be who I am without my trauma, so I own it. I claim it. And by doing that, I believe I have found a way to use it in service to others. Empathy, compassion, and forgiveness. These are all part of the practice that moves me forward in every decision or encounter I experience. And here's the thing. I can give empathy and compassion and forgiveness to others when I have given empathy, compassion, and forgiveness to myself. I'm going to be empathetic with myself first. I can look back on my childhood. I can look back on things that have happened in my past. And I can say, you were X age. You were a child. You were not supposed to be in this predicament. You were not supposed to be left without certain resources. That is not your fault. You were a child doing what you knew to do at the time with the resources you were given, with the knowledge that you had at that age. That's being empathetic to yourself. I can show compassion to myself and understand, well, because you were a child, these these things happen. They happen to you. They affected your life. Now what will now what will you do with the effect? I can forgive myself. Some people just need to work on forgiveness of themselves. They're having a hard time forgiving other people because they haven't forgiven themselves. You don't know. Here's one. You don't know what you don't know. We often say hindsight is 2020, right? People say, man, if, if I would have known now what I knew back then, well, you didn't know. You only had that limited information. So forgive yourself. Don't hold on to places and thoughts and things of which you had no control over. Forgive yourself. And when you start learning how to forgive yourself, guess what? It becomes easier to let things go with other people. Now, does forgiveness mean that that person or that that caused maybe some trauma in your life? Does that mean that they get access back to your life? No. But it does mean that you get to let go of that feeling of resentment towards them. And does that happen overnight? For some people it could, but for others it doesn't. 
Sometimes you might have to find yourself forgiving that person every single day. Every time that thought or event comes to your mind, you might have to practice forgiving again. Dr. Perry says this, yes, that brings us back to post-traumatic wisdom. When you've lived through adversity, you can come to a point in your life where you can look back, reflect, learn, and grow from the experience. I believe it's hard to understand humankind unless you know a little bit about adversity. Adversity, challenges, disappointment, loss, and trauma all can contribute to the capacity to be broadly empathetic to become wise. Trauma and adversity in a way can be a gift. What we do with these gifts will differ from person to person. Oprah says, it's so interesting to hear you say that. When I was growing up, I wanted to live like Leave it to Beaver. That was my idea of what a family should be. Milk and cookies at home, mom and dad together, the whole thing. But I wouldn't have become the evolved human being that I'm still in the process of becoming if I'd had everything at my disposal or had everything I wanted at exactly the moment I thought I wanted it. I feel the same way. It is true, though, that the cost of wisdom can be very high. And for many people, the pain never goes away. The wise learn how to carry their burden with grace, often to protect others from the emotional intensity of their pain. Now, here's where I differ with Dr. Perry about carrying your burden with grace. Why do I differ? Because from the construct that I live in spiritually, there is somebody who said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I have in spiritual practice, a place where I can take my burdens. My question is, what's your spiritual practice? Because we don't have to carry certain things. My spiritual practice says, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. David said it this way, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. So I have to remind myself in times where I am feeling low or feeling down or feeling burdened or feeling overwhelmed, I have some place that I can release my burden, release my trouble, release my pain, release my disappointment, and I can take those things and cast my cares knowing that my creator cares for me. He doesn't want me to walk around with my head to the ground. He doesn't want me to walk around um, with my back hunched over because of the weight of the burdens of life. So there is a place spiritually that I can release from. Now, I don't know what everybody's spiritual practice is who's listening, but I can tell you that in that Christian spiritual practice, you are supposed to be casting your cares because the creator of all things cares for you. 
Oprah says this. This makes me think of Anthony Ray Hinton, the man who served 30 years on death row for a murder he didn't commit. For the first three years of his sentence, he did not speak at all. He was so depressed and desolate. He said he felt like God took away his voice. The thing that allowed him to survive was his ability to dissociate. He turned to his imagination and gave himself all kinds of experiences. He played in Wimbledon and won five games. He played in the NBA. He met the Queen of England. He was married to Halle Berry. He did it all in his mind. He was able to use his dissociative superpower to protect himself from the uncontrollable, unavoidable pain of his imprisonment. And then he found a way to turn it to good. The wisdom and grace you're talking about. After he started connecting with other inmates on death row, he convinced the warden to let them start a book club. He thought they didn't know how to travel in their minds the way he did, but books could let them do that. He wanted them to have a way to start to heal as he had started to heal. You know, throughout all our many conversations, I keep going back to a show I did with Ayanla Van Zant years ago. She said that until you heal the wounds of your past, you will continue to bleed. The wounds will bleed through and stain your life, through alcohol, through drugs, through sex, through overworking. You have to have the courage to pull out the wound and begin to heal yourself. This is the lesson I hope everyone carries with them from our conversation too. We must understand and heal the wounds of the past before we can move forward. I can't help thinking the same is true for a society, not just an individual. How can our society move toward a more humane, socially just, creative, and productive future without confronting our collective historical trauma? Both trauma experienced and trauma inflicted. If we truly want to understand ourselves, we need to understand our history, our true history, because the emotional residue of our past follows us. But that can't happen until there is a tipping point of awareness of what we have done to ourselves as human beings, of what the true human condition is, of what trauma has done to all of us. That's when there will be a realization that we need to do something different. The core elements are awareness coupled with connectedness. Together, these can create a trauma-informed community and a trauma-informed nation. Oprah replies, I think that's what the world truly needs more of right now. When you're able to really see another person, that's true compassion and extending yourself in compassion to another human being changes the nature of our relationships, our communities, and our world. The acknowledgement of one human being by another is what bonds us. Asking what happened to you expands the human connection. It is easy to be discouraged and overwhelmed by the many problems in our society, to be demoralized by the inequities, adversities, and trauma that are all too pervasive in our world. But if you study history, you will recognize that the overall trajectory of humankind is positive. Our world is filled with many kind and capable and creative people. We are a curious species. We will continue to discover, invent, and learn. We can make our world a safer, more just, and humane place for all. Epilogue. The young man was standing waist deep in the pool, leading an aqua fitness class for the elderly. He was wearing a blue t-shirt with the logo of a retirement home, 
a lanyard with a whistle and a large name tag. I couldn't read the name, but I knew it. Jesse, the young man from chapter three. The last time I seen him 10 years earlier, he was unconscious in a hospital bed. I watched through a window as Jesse enthusiastically led eight members of the retirement community through their paces. He moved from person to person smiling, correcting their stances, helping one woman with her shoulder. It was clear that they liked him and he liked them. He was having fun, they were having fun, and he belonged. When I originally evaluated Jesse, it was a consultation for a clinical team in another state. After the initial in-person consultation, which took place while he was still in a coma, I continued to track his progress and consult to his team from a distance. After a month or so, Jesse woke up. Initially, he had signs of severe brain damage, but slowly, all of his functioning returned with the exception of his aspects of his long-term memory. He, uh, his autobiographical memory of life before the coma was in disorganized shards. When asked about people, places, and events, he simply could not remember. The neurology team thought this was related to his brain injury. Having seen multiple cases of amnesia following trauma, I wasn't so sure. My recommendation was to let that go for the time being and let's get him back to walking, talking, moving, and socializing. We can track his memory, focus on short-term memory skills, but let's get him into a safe, stable, and nurturing placement for the first time in his life. Initially, he needed a special needs placement due to his rehabilitation plan. The social worker on the team, who was a lot smarter than I, suggested that we place him in a local retirement community that had a continuum of living situations from independent to dorm-like to single rooms and more. Several of the community's senior staff members were given on-site housing as part of their compensation. The social worker's partner was one of them. The two of them had lived together on campus at the community, and so they agreed to foster Jesse. It was a true community, multiple buildings, a garden, a gym with a pool and exercise rooms, a library, a hairdresser, dining rooms, and a coffee shop. The placement was good. Jesse moved in and was embraced by the staff and residents. Though in the beginning he was homeschooled, Within a year, he was able to walk down the street to the public school. He was able to manage the academic content. He had no behavioral problems at home or school. But while he made a few friends, he was never very close or comfortable with his peers. He was liked by all, but not really embraced by any. His best relationships were with his foster parents and the elderly residents. He started working as a transportation aide, helping residents move throughout the complex, to get to their various appointments in the community. He learned how to drive. At 18, he was allowed to move in to one of the independent living placements. He graduated from high school. Now at 23, he was legally independent but connected to his foster parents. He was in community college part-time, focusing on physical education classes with aspirations of becoming a physical therapist. At the community, he had advanced to the role of assistant recreation director with part of his compensation being his housing and board. He had found his safe and stable nurturing home. Thousands upon thousands of unstructured therapeutic moments in his community had helped him to heal. As I began to meet with him and sit down with him, I said, you will not remember this, Jesse, but I was one of the doctors working 
back when you had your brain injury. Thank you for agreeing to see me. He smiled and put his hand out. Well, thank you for helping me back then. We walked to the cafeteria, got our lunch, and sat down to talk. We went back and forth until he asked politely, Did you come here to analyze me? No, you'd have to pay me for that. We looked at each other, fully present in a silent, connected moment. I do wonder about your memory, though. A slow sadness came over his face. He said, I knew you would like these. Let's go out to the garden this afternoon and get some more. As she walked away, this woman who passed by, Jesse seemed embarrassed, not by their interaction, but by their earlier moment of sadness. When you first were recovering from your head injury, Dr. Anderson said you had no memory of your childhood. He said, I don't really like to think about all that. Well, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. It's okay. I just don't like to think about it, and I don't like to upset anyone. I suspect that you have some part of your memory. And now here you are, after all you went through, going to school, you have a great job, lots of great relationships, and you seem pretty happy. I suspect, though, you could teach me a lot. I do have trouble sleeping sometimes, he said. But then I just get up and work out, go for a run. That really helps. And I get really nervous around too many people. I really just want to go back home whenever I'm out too much. But you're always around people here, I said. That's true. I mean, I really don't like being around younger people, children. Too loud, too crazy. In that moment, I realized that many of his cues actually came from his childhood. Children's voices, smells, games, cartoons, food, anything. His childhood was so permeated with threat that his brain was struggling to make sense of the world. But his new life, his reset, his redo life was in a world with elderly people. The retirement home was filled with experiences that were different from those in a class full of children or a group home for youth. The type of movement, the speed, the pitch of the voices, the schedules, the music, the TV preferences, all of that was different. Relational interactions were different as well because they did not give cues from his childhood trauma. The placement had been even more genius than I'd realized. There were simply far fewer cues to dysregulate him in his current setting. He was able to have a more moderate, predictable, and controllable experience here. Therefore, that is why he was able to heal more quickly. So the memory loss. He looked at me with the tiniest of bittersweet smiles. I pretty much remember everything now. Yeah, I figured. One of the things I've learned over the years is that what happened to you doesn't just go away. Those childhood experiences can impact you in many ways, and there are ways to help people heal. So if any of your memories ever bother you or you feel confused or upset, don't hesitate to reach out to me. There are ways to help make the trauma easier to carry. I gave him my card. After lunch ended, a gaggle of elderly women swept him off to his next session, a modified Zumba class. As he walked down the hall, he looked at my card in his hand, turned to wave, and danced away. We talk a couple of times a year. Jesse is doing just fine. We are both still learning. The last section I'm going to read um, 
is uh, the epilogue written from Oprah. I think this is uh, very, very powerful. And then I'm going to end today by giving you some uh, reading resources and some recommendations that they have left at the end of this book. And then next Wednesday, we will be on to reading uh, Dr. Nedra Tawab's books, um, her book on boundaries, and also her book called Drama Free, which is about dealing with family conflicts and have, how to build healthy relationships with your family. All right, Oprah's epilogue. On November 22nd, 2018, my mother, Vernita Lee, passed away. I was conflicted about our relationship up until the very end. The truth is, it wasn't until I became successful that my mother started to show more interest in me. I wrestled with the question of how to take care of her. What did I owe the woman who gave me life? The Bible says, honor thy mother and father. But what did that actually mean? I decided that one of the ways I could honor her would be to help care for her financially. I always made sure she had everything she needed in order to live a comfortable life. But there was never any real connection. I would say that the audience who watched me on television knew me better than my mother did. When her health began to decline a few years ago, I knew I needed to prepare myself for her transition. Just a few days before Thanksgiving, my sister Patricia called to tell me she thought it was time. I flew to Milwaukee. I sat with my mother for hours in a room she liked to keep at around 80 degrees. We watched Steve Harvey game shows and One Life to Live on a loop. I tried to think of something to say. At one point, I even picked up the manual left by the hospice care people. I read their advice thinking the whole time how sad it was that I, Oprah Winfrey, who'd spoken to thousands of people one-on-one, -on -one, should have to read a hospice manual to figure out what to say to my mother. When it was finally time to leave, something told me it would be the last time I'd ever see her. But as I turned to go, the words still wouldn't come. All I could muster was, bye, I'll be seeing you. And I left for, ironically, a speaking engagement. On the flight home that night, the little voice in my head suddenly whispered what I knew in my heart to be true. You're going to regret this. You haven't finished the work. In that moment, I felt like a hypocrite. If anyone else had been in my shoes, I'd have told them, you need to go back and say the thing that needs to be said. I turned around and went back to Milwaukee. Spent another day in that hot room and still no words came. That night, I prayed for help. In the morning, I meditated. As I prepared to head out the door, I picked up my phone and noticed the song that was playing, Mahalia Jackson singing, Precious Lord. If there ever was a sign, this was it. I have no idea how Mahalia Jackson appeared on my playlist as I listened to the words, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Lead me on through the light, take my hand. I suddenly knew what, I, what to do. When I walked into my mother's room, I asked if she wanted to hear the song. She nodded, and then I had another idea. I called my friend Wentley Phipps, a preacher and gospel artist, and asked him to sing Precious Lord to my dying mother. Over FaceTime from his breakfast table, he sang the song a cappella and then prayed that our family would have no fear, just peace.
I could see that my mother was moved. The song and the prayer had created a sort of opening for both of us. I began to talk to her about her life, her dreams, and me. Finally, the words were there. I said, it must have been hard for you, not having an education, not having a skill, not knowing what the future held when you became pregnant. I'm sure a lot of people told you to get rid of that baby. She nodded. But you didn't, I said, and I want to thank you for keeping that baby. I paused. I know that many times you didn't know what to do. You did the best you knew how to do, and that's okay with me. That is okay with me. So you can leave now, knowing that it is well. It is well with my soul. It's been well for a long time. It was a sacred, beautiful moment, one of the proudest of my life. As an adult, I had learned to see my mother through a different lens. Not as the mother who didn't care for me, protect me, love me, or understand anything about me, but as a young girl, still just a child herself, scared, alone, and unequipped to be a loving parent. I'd forgiven my mother years earlier for not being the mother I needed, but she didn't know that. And in our last moments together, I believe I was able to release her from the shame and the guilt of the past. I came back and I finished the work that needed to be done. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could have been any different. But we cannot move forward if we're still holding on to the pain of that past. All of us who have been broken and scarred by trauma have the chance to turn those experiences into what Dr. Perry and I have been talking about, post-traumatic wisdom. Forgive yourself, forgive them, Step out of your history and into the path of your future. My friend, the poet Martin Napoe says that the pain was necessary in order to know the truth. But we don't have to keep the pain alive in order to keep the truth alive. I made peace with my mother when I stopped comparing her to the mother that I wished that I had. When I stopped clinging to what should or could have been and turned to what was and what could be. Because what I know for sure is that everything that has happened to you was also happening for you. In all that time, in all of those moments, you were building strength. Strength times strength times strength equals power. What happened to you can be your power. Preach, Evangelist Oprah. And that's for all the people who continue to keep saying that Oprah is not a Christian. <laughs> so that was her epilogue and uh i hope that was an encouragement to you all i know that was a very very powerful encouragement to me if you've had a difficult relationship with either parent um what she spoke here this was a whole preach word yeah let's go on to resources and then we're going to close out resources I hope this book has caused you to reflect on how you understand yourself and others and that we have piqued your interest. The scope of trauma-related topics is wide and the implications of developmental adversity are profound. So we could not cover everything in this book, but if you want to learn more, here are some good places to start. For more reading, the Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and Other Stories from a Child Psychiatrist Notebook 
by Bruce D. Perry. The Body Keeps the Score. I do have this book. Um, he is a pioneer and innovator in the field of trauma. However, I don't recommend this book anymore because of some things that have come out about this particular doctor when it comes to him, he himself actually abusing and traumatizing women. So, I mean, you can get the book, but it's not one that I personally recommend. Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered by Maya Zalovitz. I'll spell that for you. M-A-I-A. And her last name is S-Z-A-L-A-V-I-T-Z in Dr. Bruce Perry. Again, the book is called Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World by Dr. Vivek Murthy, M-U-R-T-H-Y. The Deepest Well. Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity by Dr. Nadine Harris. To learn more about the brain and neurosciences, you can go to the website brainfacts.org. This is the most reliable, accurate, and accessible resource for anyone who is interested in brain science. For prevention of abuse and support for families, you can go to preventchildabuse.org. This is the nation's oldest and largest organization dedicated to prevention. If you want to take the Adverse Childhood Experiences test, you can go to www.cdc.gov forward slash violence prevention forward slash ACEs, A-C-E-S forward slash index. If you want to look at the neurosequential model and the work of Dr. Perry himself, you can go to neurosequential.com. And if you want to look at the list of references from this book, you can visit whathappentoyoubook.com for all of the references that we have listed today. All right. So I do want to thank you for those of you who have uh, hung in with us every Wednesday and we have been reading through what happened to you. Um, I think to me, this has been a very, very solid work on ex on explaining trauma, how it works in the brain, what it does to the brain, um, and how you can heal and how you can regulate yourself. I have found this book to be super helpful and, um, I recommend it for anybody going through trauma, anybody's working through childhood traumatic issues and experiences. This is a very good book to, to start um, taking you through that process. Again, next Wednesday, we'll be starting Dr. Nidra Tawab's books, The One on Boundaries, and her drama-free book. We'll be reading from both of them, probably intro and intro, and then we'll just do chapters at a time. All right. I want to thank you for your time and attention today. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. Thank you for watching and viewing. Tomorrow we'll be back with Thinking Thursday. We'll be reading from Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, a Black Biblical Interpretation. Take care, everyone. Be well. And remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So go out and be light.
Take care and God bless.